The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Okay, yeah, so Riley suggested the, uh, a title and I liked it, so I, I took it. Um, and not knowing what everybody was going to present before me, I um, included things that have been discussed in some way, fashion already, uh, but hopefully I can skip over those topics or visit them in a different way. I'm going to talk to you mostly about the way that uh, these geoengineering ideas have been explored in climate models and maybe where the challenges remain, what the inadequacies of the, uh, the studies that have been done to date are. And it's important to acknowledge the many people who I've worked with on these uh, projects over the last five years or so, and I'm sure I've left some out also, but uh, I've caught most of them and I'll try and acknowledge them as I go along as well. So I've worked on both stratospheric aerosols and on the cloud seeding calculations, and I'm going to touch on both of those topics. I, just to keep the story going, I included this, but I get to skip it over because Mike and Alan have talked about it as well. And as I said, most of my focus is going to be on stratospheric aerosols and cloud whitening. There have also been some interesting studies recently on uh, looking at ways to increase long wave emissions. And, I know that's something that Graham is also interested, but I won't talk to, to, to you about that today. The, um, but in order to start things off, I'm going to just remind you of what we typically use for global climate models today. We divide the planet up into columns about 100 kilometers on a side and, and um, produce a layer structure, which looks something like this with model layers that are order 100 meters thick near the surface. And then as you move up to a few kilometers, maybe four or five kilometers, they increase to a kilometer or two. And by the time you reach the tropopause, there are more like two or three kilometers in thickness. So our ability to resolve many of the features that are important for climate problems and for the processes that we're talking about is really crude right now. And, and we pay the penalty for it. You'll see that in many ways in the studies that I, I tell you about. Uh, you've all heard about Pinatubo already. And this is, a, Alan has frequently indicated to me that this is a, a picture of the, not the major eruption, but a few days before that major eruption uh, of Pinatubo. But what we do know is that the, the planet cooled following Pinatubo. The black line here is showing you a time series of the globally average surface temperature from a study by Brian Soden. And the red lines here are showing you um, climate model simulations that attempt to um, simulate the, t the globally average temperature response of the model to uh, the, the burdens of aerosols that were seen to be introduced uh, in, in global climate models. So I'm showing you here one of the success stories in the sense that the model temperature response is something like we see we see in uh, observations. And there are even more subtle things that um, occur. If you look at the water vapor distribution and compare it with observations, the, the water vapor burdens in the planet are, are controlled to some degree by temperature and by the radiative forcing that's associated with, uh, um, well, with many aspects of uh, the climate problem, but in part due to the uh, aerosol forcing associated with Pinatubo, and we get the appropriate response here, as well as 
approximately the appropriate response in what's called the water vapor feedback also. So there are some things that climate models are quite good at. On the other hand, there are some things that we're challenged by at the moment. And I'm going to remind you here of some of the processes which control uh, stratospheric aerosols and, and how they're represented in models as well as uh, what we, what we, how we think the real world works. So I've taken this cartoon from a very nice assessment document produced by Spark in 2006. And essentially, it's uh, a cross-section of the planet from the equator to pole showing you uh, the place where stratospheric aerosols occur just above the tropopause. And the, uh, essentially, the, the processes which control the evolution of the aerosols and, and their removal. There are many sulfur-bearing species which originate near the surface. And by hook or by crook, they're relatively rapidly transported from the surface to the tropopause and, and undergoing oxidation processes as they go. And uh, at some point in the game, though, those sulfur-bearing species are oxidized to sulfuric acid or uh, some related species, where they can undergo condensation new, and new particle formation, and then vapor deposition on existing particles as well, and the particles can coagulate. At higher altitudes, when the temperatures start warming up, those particles can actually evaporate, and the sulfuric acid can undergo photolysis back to SO2 and, um, and then re get reoxidized elsewhere as well. So you see this relatively narrow band of aerosols at the tropical tropopause. And you, in order to do a reasonable job of mimicking this, you have to uh, represent the processes of condensation and coagulation, of sedimentation, evaporation, and transport as well and the removal processes that, that are responsible for removing them in the tropopause. And all of these things play a role in our ability to represent the, the, the stratospheric aerosols. If we do that kind of thing, we get distributions that look a lot like what are seen in, uh, in the observations. And I'm showing you here a simulation that um, I did uh, in 2008, showing you a, a, a similar cross-section with the aerosol surface area density plotted here. And uh, then uh, a top-down view of the aerosol distributions. In this case, what we did, these are geoengineering aerosols. And these were introduced in the tropics at about 20 kilometers in altitude and the, as SO2 gas. And then the SO2 gas gradually undergoes the processes that I, I described to you on the previous slide. And what you see is that the, the aerosols tend to maximize in the source region where the emissions are and in the polar regions as well. I'm showing you here the summertime distribution for the northern hemisphere so that you can see that the maximum in the radiative forcing is, uh, is occurring in the, in the tropics and at the poles where the, uh, where the aerosol is. Uh, has relatively high aerosol burdens and where the sun is shining also. So uh, these are the, the sort of methods and, and tools which we're using to produce the kind of simulations that Alan and I have talked to you about. And when you impose these uh, aerosols in a coupled model, you can 
as a geoengineering aerosols, you can see the uh, planet cool down. The left panel is showing you a temperature distribution from our model in which we've uh, instantaneously doubled CO2 and then in a slab ocean configuration run to an equilibrium and what's happened when we've imposed the geoengineering aerosols and the planet does cool off as we expected it to or uh, and has been uh, in, suggested by many modeling studies since that time. In this case we chose a scenario which didn't uh, completely uh, counteract the CO2 emissions, but it's pretty close. But there are some subtle things that, are, that go on as well, and here I'm showing you the time series of this globally average surface temperature for a set of simulations. In this case, it's a bit flawed, but the, but the mechanism that I want to discuss to, with you is present in models that are in simulations that are not flawed as well. And what I'm showing you here is the uh, time series of the surface temperature change for a variety of simulations. The blue dots here are showing you the warming that occurs in a slab ocean model, a model in which the ocean dynamics are prescribed rather than allowed to evolve uh, dynamically. Uh, and these classes of models equilibrate much more rapidly than those coupled models that include a full ocean circulation. So you see the model warming up by, um, in this case, I think it was about two degrees. And then I'm showing you another simulation here in which I uh, introduced a certain amount of geoengineering aerosol. And in this case, I introduced aerosol which was sufficient to cool the planet by more than the amount that the, uh, that the CO2 doubling would produce. But when I couple these two effects, when we make a simulation in which We've superimposed the geoengineering aerosol with uh, uh, CO2 doubling. Then, in fact, rather than the geoengineering aerosol overcooling the planet, in this case, it re remains warmer than the control indicated by this dashed line. And the reason for this is because the atmospheric dynamics are, are beginning to operate. And, in fact, the in a doubled CO2 world, the flushing of aerosols from the stratosphere into the troposphere is enhanced. And so you end up moving more of the stratospheric aerosols into the troposphere, and the lifetime of the aerosols is shorter. So it's just kind of indicating to you some of the subtleties that are introduced by the uh, coupling of these various processes, and, and that some of those couldn't be anticipated in the absence of doing the coupled simulations. Uh, Alan has showed you this plot already. We have recognized for a while that many of the geoengineering strategies will uh, influence the hydrologic cycle. And I had uh, thought Alan would describe the, the mechanism for this in, in his presentation. And so I didn't, talk, I, I didn't include it in mine. Uh, and it's too subtle to describe without some slides. So maybe we can talk about it in the later sessions if people remain interested. But one of the things that I want to point out to you is that there are, is a lot of uncertainty in the representation of or in our ability to project uh, climate change changes associated with precipitation. I'm showing you here uh, a summary of precipitation change projections 
from the AR4 IPCC. This is for um, the ensemble of models that were uh, used for that fourth assessment, about 20 models, I think. And the, the things to focus upon are the areas in white where less than 60% of the models agreed on the sign of the change, and the stippled areas where more than 90% of the models agreed, and the, colored area, the many colored areas which are neither white nor stippled, indicating that there was little consensus about the sign of the changes. And the, the, the take-home message here is that there is a lot of uncertainty about making projections of regional climate change uh, in, with respect to precipitation. And we see these kind of signatures in our geoengineering simulations as well. Um, and I, I'll show you a few examples of that here. So in this case, this is from a, uh, a review paper that I wrote with Alan and a bunch of other people a few years ago, um, in which we first, uh, well, in this case, I'm documenting the response of our model, the precipitation changes in our model to uh, a doubling of CO2. The red area is indicating where the precipitation has increased with respect to a control simulation, and the blue area is where it's decreased. And this is a pretty familiar signature with an, a sort of a net increase in precipitation over the globe and an enhancement in the hydrologic cycle with increased precipitation in the tropical regions and decreased precipitation and a narrowing of the, uh, of the ITCZ. But if you then, and, and now, oh, the stippled regions are showing you where the uh, simulations in our model were estimated to be statistically significant. If you impose the geoengineering forcing on it through the, by introducing the, the stratospheric aerosols, then in this case, the white areas indicating little change with respect to present day increase. So this uh, geoengineering simulation is returning the planet to something that looks more like present-day precipitation distributions. And uh, the, the, the colored areas in both um, positive and negatives are, are much reduced. So take-home message is that in this case, in spite of there being some consequences to the precipitation distribution, as we suspect from, for example, the Pinatubo simulations, that or Pinatubo record of precipitation, that there would be changes to precipitation. In, in the, the models are suggesting that the uh, geoengineering would return the planet to something more like uh, the present day. But if you contrast this, then, with one of Allen's simulations, uh, he also showed a similar signature with a reduction in um, the differences between present day and a, and a world undergoing both, uh, well, and a world undergoing changes due to CO2 forcing. Then the other thing that we, you'll note here in their simulations are that the signatures in most places, you can look at Southeast China and um, the, in India and over, the northern part of South America, for example, are quite different. So Alan, Alan and I performed these simulations in slightly different ways. He used a fully coupled simulation, and 
used a transient CO2 forcing. I doubled CO2 and used a, a, a slab ocean model as well. But, but uh, we would anticipate that many of the signatures would be common between these two uh, simulations, and they're not. On the other hand, I would say they're quite different because we had different forcing for global warming and different forcing for geoengineering. That's right. Although the distributions of the forcings for the geoengineering would have been quite similar, and the spatial distributions for the forcings would have been quite similar, although the relative amplitude of those would have been different. On the other hand, then uh, Andy Jones and Alan published a paper in their, both their teams, Andy Jones from the UK Met Office, uh, doing a similar kind of an intercomparison activity. And they found some more common features than the features that, that Alan and I found in the comparison of the NCAR and GIS models. So there are more common features between these two simulations than the ones that, we've, that, that we saw in our first paper. And this has argued for the set of studies that Alan mentioned earlier on today, the GeoMIP intercomparison activity, where uh, we begin to try and do a very careful intercomparison of models rather than the, 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 the sort of after-the-fact intercomparison studies that we used uh, to date. So the, another topic that was mentioned earlier on were uh, the subtleties of the way in which uh, stratospheric aerosols are parameterized or, or operate in models, and there was a very interesting uh, study that was done by uh, Jeff Pierce recently and contrasting it with some of the simulations by Carhonen that Alan mentioned earlier on as well, uh, exploring the, uh, the subtleties of aerosol microphysics. And I'm going to try and walk you through that here by showing you size the evolution of size distribution of aerosols versus number. Uh, for a variety of different ways of making stratospheric aerosols and remind you of the fact that for a given mass, if the mass is, uh, exists in smaller aerosols, they tend to be more reflective, but they also have a higher surface to volume ratio. And so they, uh, since the ozone um, loss reactions occur on uh, are a function of, of the surface area of the aerosols. It's easier to deplete ozone if you have small aerosols. And, and also, I want to remind you that larger aerosols will fall out faster. So if we start by just looking at a, a sort of an idealized distribution of background aerosols, uh, which I'm indicating here, and contrast them with the aerosol size distribution that occurs following a volcanic eruption, then what you see is the volcanic eruptions tend to produce more aerosols at most size ranges, and the mode of the aerosol distribution tends to be larger as well. Of course, these large particles fall out more rapidly also. But if you then try uh, to produce a geoengineering aerosol by introducing SO2, then what you find is that instead of many new particles being formed, as occurs often in the volcanic eruptions immediately following the eruption, a lot of the, air, of the sulfuric acid gas that uh, is produced by the 
introduction of the SO2 gas will condense on existing particles, and those particles will grow larger than they would otherwise and fall out faster. And this is the explanation for the forcing effect that Alan showed in his, uh, in one of the figures, and I'll show it in a, in a, in a bit. On the other hand, the, the study by Jeff Pierce with David Keith and others have suggested that another mechanism for doing this would be to introduce sulfuric acid gas and, uh, directly and allow it to make new particles uh, immediately and that it, the, the size distribution that is produced is relatively insensitive to the nucleation mechanism or the coagulation mechanism. And what you f get are many uh, smaller part or many particles at smaller sizes than you'd otherwise get. And so uh, these are things which we're speculating about and require uh, exploration in a variety of different models. The models, some of the, the models which we use need to represent the um, a, a bin resolved size distribution. Uh, or a bin result set of microphysics, uh, and, but they need to be allowed to evolve to spatial scales that are relevant to the climate problem also, so that it can be quite complex to um, explore these processes. We already talked about this study, uh, and so I think I'll, I'll just jump over it. There are also consequences to ozone, and. Uh, Simona Tilmus and I, uh, and uh, maybe some other, other people in this room, were co-authors on a paper which tried to evaluate the uh, changes in ozone. It's, it's actually the fact that in some parts of the uh, atmosphere, there's um, more ozone being produced than you would get without the geoengineering aerosols. But if one looks at the column burdens, then for much of the planet, particularly in the high latitudes, there are fewer, uh, there, there's less aerosols, uh, less ozone, sorry. On the other hand, uh, one thing that we have to keep in mind as well is that the models are not at the moment particularly good at simulating ozone distributions, and Mike Mills or Maybe Brian Toon may want to comment on these things as well. But um, what we showed here were estimates of the ozone evolution from 1980 through the future. The left, the diamonds here are, or the triangles rather, are observations of, of ozone loss and um, the, or of ozone itself. And, um, the, no, of ozone depletion, sorry. Um, the, the, what we expect to see is as chlorine gradually returns to levels that are, uh, that, that occur in the absence of CFC releases, that ozone depletion will be reduced, and that if we introduce geoengineering aerosols that uh, the, the depletion will remain significantly higher. Um, and this kind of uh, study is relatively useful and accurate for the southern hemisphere Antarctic vortex where we do a reasonably good job of modeling it. 
but in the Arctic, the, uh, our, uh, we don't do a very good job of modeling the Arctic vortex evolution with uh, frequent, uh, often too frequent sudden warmings and um, our ability to represent the uh, present-day ozone uh, loss reactions is compromised and we're less certain about what the, uh, the future will bring with or without uh, geoengineering as well. We're also uh, quite aware of the uh, sensitivity of our current model simulations to the way we, that we represent things like sea ice dynamics with uh, the projections of geoengineering being very different depending on how we introduce uh, uh, the, the mechanisms for ice growth and ice movement. Um, one of the things which, one of the other things which uh, hasn't been mentioned yet is we are concerned, for example, that through the introduction of geoengineering aerosols will introduce more ozone loss. And of course, one of the reasons why we care so much about that is because it influences how much UV radiation reaches the surface, and it's important for biota and for ecosystems in general. And, uh, but there have been a few studies which show that uh, stratospheric aerosols uh, of the size, range, and composition that uh, occur for stratospheric aerosols also attenuate UV radiation, and, and that at the aerosol optical depths that are required for geoengineering that there may, might be a balance between the, U, the amount of UV uh, attenuated by the stratospheric aerosols and the enhancement from ozone loss. So that's one thing which hasn't been looked at in much uh, detail and, and, and deserves more study. And uh, as we've already mentioned, uh, the stratospheric aerosols don't deal with ocean acidification. So Graham talked a lot about uh, ship tracks like this and the role of open and closed cellular convection, and so I won't spend much time on it. This, uh, this was the figure that uh, was in my mind when we were having our conversation about the, the areas for, uh, that were most susceptible to geoengineering. Uh, this was from a study that uh, I did a while ago with John Latham, and the, the, the assessment of where we might seed was actually done by a postdoc of mine, but uh, in, in this study and, and, and a variety of others, um, the marine stratocumulus regions were ones, in w ones that, that were identified as being the most natural for, the, uh, for a geoengineering type activity, and so it's particularly interesting to contrast that with uh, the work that Graham showed. Um, I'm now going to show you a set of simulations that we've done with uh, where we've introduced, uh, we've introduced um, geoengineering aerosols by increasing the cloud drop number in these regions. Um, 
we just have said, let's magically uh, assume that, that we could introduce sea salt aerosols into the model. They would act as cloud condensation nuclei and uh, change the cloud drop number. So what we've done in this case is to, in, in this case, what I'm showing are the months of the year that we seeded these particular regions. And you can assume that we always seeded in the summer months, for example. Um, and what we've done is to assume that in these regions, we could increase the cloud drop number of the, the boundary layer clouds to 300 drops per cubic centimeter. And uh, so we haven't uh, explored at all the subtleties of the aerosol cloud interactions that Graham talked about earlier on. But what we might expect as well is that if we do brighten the clouds in these regions, that we would see very different signatures of the uh, climate effect because we would be significantly reducing the amount of sunlight in small regions of the planet uh, for, uh, yeah, small regions of the planet um, compared to the kind of signatures that one would produce using the stratospheric aerosols, which are much more global in extent. So if we look then at what the response is of the coupled model, uh, in, in one early study that we did, um, we saw signatures in the precipitation distribution, which looked, looked like this. Again, with redu reductions in uh, the ITCZ in the Central Pacific, actually enhancements in the north, uh, nor northern part of the Australian monsoon circular system. And interestingly enough, we see an increase in the, um, in the precipitation occurring over the Amazon. This is to be contrasted with a similar study that Andy Jones did with the UK Met Office model, where they found that the introduction of geoengineering aerosols in marine stratocumulus result, resulted in a decrease in the Amazonian rainfall. Now, in that case, they, they then teased out what was the particular forcing signatures which were responsible for this reduction in Amazon rainfall. And they determined that it was primarily the uh, brightening of clouds off the coast of Africa. Which you didn't do. Which we didn't do because we didn't have very much marine stratocumulus in that region. And so that it wasn't possible to brighten the clouds in that region. So there are suggestions that uh, there are uh, important things that are, uh, re remain to be looked at with respect to our understanding of how the, uh, the precipitation is responding to changes in these forcings. Now, um, I'm going to skip forward and come back. This is a similar figure. Well, Fui, I've lost the slide that I wanted to show you, so I guess I'll go back to where I was. OK. So with respect to the issues associated with geoengineering by 
boundary layer clouds and, and as well through stratospheric aerosols, you can kind of partition the way we think about the climate science problems into two pieces. One is to say, if we could achieve the forcings that we want to by um, the geoengineering strategy, what would be the response of the planet? And we can use general circulation models to look at those kind of uh, uh, questions. But then you could also say, do we really understand how to achieve the geoengineering effect that we want to? Is it possible to brighten clouds? Is it possible to produce the stratospheric aerosols that we're looking at? And in those cases, it's often necessary to look at detailed process level models as well. And I've suggested that for the uh, stratospheric aerosols with respect to the evolution of the particle size distribution, but there are similar kinds of questions which we can look at uh, with the boundary layer clouds also, and many of the things which Graham talked about are relevant to that. So um, I'm going to touch on a, f a few more things with respect to the exploring the impacts on climate, and then talk to you more about the, uh, or, or finish with, with, with one slide with respect to process level modeling also. Um, I showed you the precipitation distribution changes that were associated with geoengineering by boundary layer cloud seeding. This is the temperature distribution in a cir circumstance where we're seeding 20%. Well, OK, this is the temperature change for a doubling of CO2 in the situation where we seed 20% of the ocean and where we seed 70% of the ocean. The signatures here are very similar to each other, but one thing, but of course, the amplitude of the uh, ocean response is larger when we seed more of the ocean surface. One of the interesting things that we see is that the model is tending to move into a La Nina type uh, circulation. And uh, so there are, um, some, there, there's some real interest in attempting to look at what the effects are on ocean circulations as well. And another thing that one will see is that there are significant changes in the North Atlantic temperature distribution here. And uh, this is an area where deep water forms and where the meridional overturning circulation is uh, being driven. Mike? 70% of what of the ocean? Of the ocean surface is being seeded. So it changed to 300 drops per cubic centimeter. Even though there are not clouds there or whatever? Oh, it's, it if there is a cloud, it, is, it, it, it will have the value of 300 drops per cubic centimeter. For 70% of the clouds there, you are? Yeah, it's, so it's. Um, where, where there are clouds. Where there are clouds, that's right. So there are, there are hints in this kind of a figure that there will be changes in, in La Nina, El Nino, or ENSO-type signatures, as well as in meridional overturnings. So the model is a coupled model? This is a fully coupled model. So how long does it take to run this to a state? Uh, I think in this case, what we've done is to run the model for 100 years and average the last 40 years of the simulation. So you have to see these clouds 70% of the ocean for 100 years? Well, that's right, in order to see this response. But we've, so in, in virtually every geoengineering simulation done to date, what we've tried to do at the moment is to exaggerate the effects yeah, to see if we can extract signal to noise. But. So 
Yeah. You say you seed 70% of the oceans. Do you discriminate uh, which clouds you seed in terms of how thick they are? No. It, we seed all clouds in the lowest two kilometers of the atmosphere. All liquid clouds. But only 70% of the clouds can be seen. 70% of the, we, what we've done is to take every cell of our model yes. and to rank it by its susceptibility to cloud seeding. And then choose the 70% of those columns over the oceans that are, that are most susceptible and then apply that seeding strategy there. That's right. It jumps. So it repeats. Um, we, we've, we've analyzed this month by month and imposed this seeding strategy on a, choosing the, 70, the, the cells which are the most susceptible in each month. And we, we repeat that pattern year after year after year. OK? That's right. And so and and under those circumstances we wouldn't do anything because there wouldn't be if if a cloud formed we would assume that it would be seeded. There are also changes in the latent heat fluxes and of course that's uh, associated with evaporation and it's also responsible for changes in the precipitation distribution and um, I yeah, this would require a discussion of fast and slow uh, forcing and response that I don't have time to talk to you about. The sea ice is, um, in spite of the fact that the forcings that we're imposing are primarily in the subtropics, the heat transports are global in nature, and you see a, a response in sea ice. Um, even though the, the forcing is imposed primarily in the subtropics. So we see with a doubling of CO2, a loss of sea ice. This is familiar for most coupled model simulations. The sea ice responds with geoengineering, and it's actually possible to overdo the effect with additional uh, enhancements over what uh, we, we've seen, uh, well, what we get in a, with our present-day simulations. And I've talked about that figure already. <coughs> there are also ch changes to the deep ocean um, and upper ocean. And I'm showing you here in the top left panel the temperature changes that are associated with a doubling of CO2 with the yellow areas showing an increase in the surface temperature of the ocean. This is a cross-section of the global ocean basin. And the result of imposing the uh, geoengineering seeding or geoengineering by boundary layer cloud seeding. And uh, this uh, warming of the near surface waters is, is gone or much reduced in the geoengineering simulations. And if one looks at the meridional overturning circulations, these are quite, uh, well, it would take a while to explain them in much detail, but these are showing you the differences in the meridional overturning circulation between a run in which we've doubled CO2 and a control with the uh, red areas here showing you a reduction in the strength of the meridional overturning circulation. And the left panels 
These two panels, this is a global cross-section and this is for the Atlantic only. Um, the left panels are showing you the results from the doubled CO2 simulations and the right panels here, the results for in which we've imposed the geoengineering. And what one sees is that the geoengineering has reduced, significantly reduced the impact on the MOC. Um, Giri Stenchikov has also uh, explored the impact of uh, volcanic signatures in the ocean, and I think Alan might have mentioned this as well. And I just uh, stole a few um, notes from his abstract that volcanic cooling is tending to strengthen the meridional overturning circulation. And uh, in this case, our geoengineering simulations are with the boundary layer cloud seeding is doing the same thing. So we see that uh, the doubling of CO2 is tending to weaken the overturning circulation, and in this case, geoengineering is tending to strengthen it as well. So uh, I'm now jumping to uh, a focus more on the process level, and Graham spent a lot of time talking to you about these things, so I won't, uh, but just say that these are the kinds of issues that we as climate modelists are worrying about and recognize that we don't have the tools to, to do this necessarily in the context of a, of a global climate model. Other kinds of models are required. And then um, to discuss a couple of the subtleties of it, uh, in 1998, Steve Gann wrote a nice paper in which he pointed out that, um, that there's a competition between various kinds of aerosols and that if one, were, one was to introduce additional aerosols into the boundary layer, that various effects might occur. In this case, what he pointed out was that increasing uh, sea salt could have a variety of different effects depending upon the circumstance for clouds that in pristine conditions and strong updrafts that you might, that uh, increasing sea salt fluxes might increase cloud drop activation because the accumulation mode sea salt particles are actually activating. But under other circumstances, in polluted conditions with weak updrafts that increasing sea salt fluxes can actually decrease activation due to competition with the coarse mode sea salt particles, which is something that Graham was talking about as well, or would occur with these giant nuclei. And these kind of um, uh, processes have been looked at briefly in global models, but not particularly effectively at this point in the game. Hanalei Korhonen published a study a couple of a year ago now in which he attempted to explore those um, effects with a, with a very detailed size resolved microphysics model, but a model in which all of the dynamical processes were prescribed, unlike the kind of uh, models which Graham was talking to about, LES models. And under those circumstances, she found that uh, supersaturation was lowered by the extra aerosols that were being introduced and that natural aerosols were not activating under those circumstances. And then under other situations, she pointed out that there was another mechanism that increasing sea salt uh, might make the 
pH of the water more alkaline, which affects the rate of aqueous oxidation of, the, of any um, sulfur dioxide or dimethyl sulfide that's present in the uh, boundary layer, and that this in, tur in turn is going to um, uh, influence the rate of new particle formation as well. So these kind of questions actually, uh, although they're interesting and absolutely relevant to the uh, geoengineering uh, and climate activities, are, are much better dealt with in the context of um, a resolved cloud model or an LES model. Uh, so I've shown you in a, a previous slides that different general circulation models are producing different signatures for precipitation. And um, we have begun an effort to tease out that kind of response in our models. And I had a second panel on this uh, uh, slide that I wanted to show you and can show you in a, uh, per perhaps in another circumstance, but I haven't gotten permission from my uh, colleagues at the UK Met Office to show that figure. So what I wanted to do was to tell you that because of the very complicated feedbacks in the climate system when we try to introduce these perturbations in, in clouds and look at the response, we've attempted to, to back off from that circumstance and return to some of the uh, strategies that were first suggested by Bob Sess probably 20 years ago by imposing sea surface temperature changes in our, couple, or in our climate models. And what we've done with the Met Office group is first to define a seeding region in a, in a particular coupled general circulation model, introduce the seeding of boundary layer clouds in that region, and identify an SST response and a precipitation response. And then impose that same, um, that same surface temperature perturbation in another climate model and look at the response in that other climate model to see whether we get the same kind of responses in precipitation or cloud fraction or many other fields. And um, it would have. I, You'll have to take my word for it that if I was to show you the response between the NCAR and the UK Met Office model in the context of this, that, uh, of this intercomparison, that the response is quite similar across the two coupled models, indicating that it's the, the, the precipitation distributions are actually being um, influenced by, by ocean atmosphere feedbacks, for example, and not necessarily by the, uh, the the, the uh, subtleties of the, of, the, of the cloud distributions themselves. Uh, so we're not very far along in that study. About five minutes? Three minutes. OK. So I'm going to skip this one. And I think I'll finish up by uh, showing you one simulation which uh, was done by uh, Hailong Wong, Graham and I, and recently appeared in a ACP uh, paper in which we sort of made the logical extension of the studies that Graham introduced you to. 
and begun to explore the response to various seeding strategies, whether you introduce one ship into a model domain or multiple ships into polluted marine stratocumulus or pristine marine stratocumulus or stratocumulus which are uh, occurring uh, in weak subsidence and stronger subsidence and uh, identify the response to the uh, of the albedo change in this model or the, of the cloud systems. And so what I'm showing you here are uh, animations where we've introduced three ships and you can see the um, uh, an estimate of the CCN distribution introduced by the ships in the right colored panels and the albedo response in the left black and white panels for um, a pristine situation and a, and a more, uh, more polluted situation. And uh, then when we've taken this same source distribution but, uh, but distributed it uniformly over the model domain uh, and uh, what you can see are uh, that there are different responses to the same injection rate depending on many of these circumstances. And I think I'll, I'll close there and uh, open it up for, for discussion. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.